This is the Fire Dog Podcast. The views and opinions presented on today's episode are those of the speaker and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or the United States Air Force. Welcome, my name is Matt Wilson. Thank you for joining us for episode 35 of the Fire Dog Podcast. Before we get into the episode, don't forget to check out our website, firedog.us, where you'll find every episode along with articles from people across the fire service. And as always, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. I'd like to take this opportunity, and I'm excited to announce and introduce a new FireDog Podcast host, Chris Boykley. Chris was a guest on episode 24, along with Travis Bender, where they discussed the Fireground Rescue and Survival Course, also known as FRAS. Chris is a Master Sergeant in the Air Force Reserves and is a founder and instructor of the course and also a firefighter for Indianapolis Fire Department. We brought him onto the team to incorporate a non-active duty perspective and to diversify things a bit. He joins me for the first time today as co-host. Our guest today has been in the military since 1989. He entered the U.S. Army Reserves as a firefighter. He spent some time on active duty in the Army and eventually he crossed over to the Air Force Reserves in 1998 to work as a firefighter for the 919th Civil Engineers Squadron at Duke Field, Florida. He eventually landed an opportunity to serve as command chief for the 919th Special Operations Wing, a position he still holds today. He's also served as a firefighter and is currently a battalion chief for the Dothan Fire Department in Alabama. He joins us today to talk about his extensive experience in the military, his experience as a firefighter and Dothan, and shares a firsthand account of a Mayday situation where he was the incident commander. It is my pleasure to welcome Command Chief Master Sergeant Peter Webb. All right, Chief. Well, welcome, and I really do appreciate you joining us. Um, you know, it's a pleasure having you on the podcast. We're excited to discuss your experience as a battalion chief and, you know, what you experience there and as a reserve command chief, which is pretty cool. And it's a perspective we don't necessarily see that often on this podcast. We kind of have a bias toward active duty, considering myself and Ben are active duty, but we brought Chris on for the very reason to kind of diversify this. And so I'm really glad that we could get you on here and that we could get Chris on here too, um, as co-host. So before we get into all the talking points, can you give us a brief synopsis of your career, you know, in the military and in the fire service? Sure. And, you know, first up, thank you for having me. Uh, I feel uh, honored and privileged to uh, join the podcast. Um, as we were talking prior to, I, I'd listened to a few episodes, but then I really, really listened to a lot of the episodes, and you guys are doing a fantastic job. So, um, yeah, so my career began in '89 uh, as an Army reservist, uh, as as a firefighter. Uh, I was a uh, with the 468th Engineer Platoon in Danvers, Massachusetts. Uh, did attend and graduate from Chinook from my in the Army would be Advanced Individual Training Tech School. Um, went active duty in October of '91 and uh, headed over to Germany. And that was immediately after Desert Shield, Desert Storm. So there was a lot of drawdown going up the Army. So I held the distinction of being the only Army firefighter in Germany for about a year. Um, after that assignment, we came to Fort Rucker, Alabama in June of 93. That's the Army Aviation School. So a lot of uh, aircraft firefighting uh, with, with the different schools and all the rotary aircraft that the Army had in their inventory. Worked stage fields, but the majority of my time I was at Station 1. Uh, right there at Fort Rucker. So had, had a pretty good structural mission there. Uh, March of 97, I was discharged from the Army because I had taken my uh, entrance exam for the city of Dothan and I was offered a position, so I chapped it out of the Army six months early. Um, so, But got in the Air Force Reserve recruiter's office uh, the day after I got out. So I got out of the Army March 12th. I was in the Reserve recruiter's office March 13th. But it took me 15 months to get into uh, my current unit in the 19th Special Operations Wing. So uh, basically got in there about June of 98, um, started there as a firefighter as well, made fire chief in September of 2012, uh, promoted to chief September 2014, um, of course activated after 9-11 for a year, I was stationed at Herbert Field and did a deployment from there to Aldafra. Um, uh, last deployment was uh, for Operation Inherit Resolve and I went to uh, Jordan as the fire chief, got back. Uh, Command chief there had a crazy idea, wanted to know if I'd fill in for him as the acting command chief at the 919th. Uh, tried it, was there for about six months as the acting command chief. And then uh, I rotated out to 10th Air Force. I was the numbered Air Force fire chief for six flights. And then March 2019, I was hired back as the command chief from the 919th South, and that's where I'm at right now. 
that's quite a bit of experience yeah well it's it, the tough the, you know the one thing about reserve and national guard members is that uh we have a tendency to stay around uh one base and you know that's part of the draw because you have a civilian career in the outside um, but now for force development, uh, not force development, but professional development, we're, we're starting to see it at the higher level, higher enlist, senior enlisted levels to get people to go to different bases. So it's career broadening. So, you you know, if you stay in one place too long, it can impact you. It has some strengths, too, but, you know, we're, we're starting to see that. So, but, yeah, I just went over 31 years Tuesday. So uh, the light is at the end of the tunnel. I'm, I'm, start, I'm a lot closer than I was 20 years ago to, well, for awesome. magic retirement. Yeah, experience is definitely something that the Reserve and Guards specifically bring to the fight. And uh, I'm, I'm currently deployed, and I can see that firsthand here. You know, people that are embedded within their communities work in the job that they work for the military, and then they bring that to their deployments. Um, and it's it really is helpful within the team to have people that are, you know, adults with experience, real-world experience and, and job-specific experience. So it's definitely a good thing, I'd say. Hey, hey, do you have any uh go ahead, oh, go ahead. No, i'm sorry go ahead well i was going to ask you know spending experiencing the army i know it was through the 90s and uh kind of a peaceful time relatively except for the early 90s um and then you joined into the air force so is there any like noticeable obviously there's differences in the air force and army but is there anything in particular you know that any big differences that kind of stood out to you i i, I think it's it's based on the mission and the attitude of the army you know uh, I, I think every service has that. You're an airman first, you're a soldier first. But I think on the Army, it's a little bit stronger um, because they're, the Army's mobile. They're not going to sit in a fixed position. Their job is to hop, is to continuously hop forward. So they probably use their firefighters um, uh, more in a mobile uh, setting type deal. And um, right. I became, to me, the, where, where I was at in my career, I became more mobile uh, not mobile, but more deployable when uh, I got into the Air Force Reserve, in all honesty. And, you know, the other oh big God. thing between the Army and the Air Force is going to be a career progression. You, As far as fire protection, um, you're, you're, you're going to make E7s about the highest. There were several that went to E8 Master Sergeant on the Army side of the house, uh, especially your school instructors, um, people working on development. So what I saw in the Air Force, because when I was stationed in Germany, I one day a week, I'd run up to Ryan Mine Air Base and do some uh, MOS training or uh, AFSC training just to maintain my skills. Because where I was at in the Ordnance Battalion, um, here's where it came into play. OJT was still common. This is when DOD certification was coming online. So the way my company and my battalion were set up is that each ordnance company had three positions for, back then it was 51 Mike 20s, which would be equivalent to probably a, a seven level. And their job was, is they were the subject matter expert firefighters, but they would train industrial, if you will, industrial firefighters to provide fire protection for where you, where you store the ammunition. So a lot of first aid firefighting, a lot of uh, uh, just knocking it down. Well, at that point, the DOTI changed and said, okay, now to be a firefighter, you must be certified. There was no more on-the-job training just to, so you could earn your uh, skill set as a firefighter. So that was the big change I saw there, because by the time I got to Fort Rucker, we were going through the grandfathering phase for certifications. Uh, so that was 90, 93 when I got to got here to Fort Rucker. So that was the biggest change right there. So the rank structure, um, you can make E9, obviously, in the Air Force. Um, in the Army, it's a little bit different. Um, uh, it's normally you cap out around E7 unless you decide to become a first sergeant and start going down there and working around the engineering corps. Or, or, or a schoolhouse. We had a, I, know, I know a couple that went beyond being firefighters in the Army, but, you know, first sergeant duty in the Army, if you want to make sergeant major, it, it's not 100%, but, it, you know, first sergeant there is more operational versus our first sergeants in the Air Force. Chief, let's dive into uh, one of the experiences you've had, civilian side. Will you, will you tell us about Thanksgiving weekend 2013? Sure, that was uh, supposed to be a quiet weekend. Um, so anyways, um, I was on B shift. I was in battalion one, uh, approximately five fifty that morning. A shift had a working fire, uh, on, on the, on the West side of the town, if you will, battalion two. Um, so as we got to shift change, we had to go ahead and do some, uh, shift changing in the street, swapping in the street. 
Uh, Battalion 2 was uh, still the incident commander while they were doing some overhaul hauling of that fire. It, it actually started on the outside, but caught the siding and ran up. And I, uh, If I remember correctly, got up in the attic space. But working incident, uh, and it, so they had their hands full. So about 7.30, um, got dispatched for another structure fire in Battalion 2's territory. So it was my call. Uh, a couple units coming from that fire it was going to be our, our engine 3 and truck 3 coming from the fire, and then eventually our rehab unit and the fire chief would come as the scene uh, unfolded. So uh, we run a three-in-one assignment, three engines, a ladder truck, uh, ambulance from a private company, and, of course, a battalion chief. And then our rehab unit comes as well. Um, so engine nine, so that's 734, it's dispatched. Engine nine's uh, arriving on scene. They're reporting smoke before they get into the neighborhood. Um, they get on scene at 740, and engine six is uh, right behind them about three minutes later. They, there's so much smoke, both of them lay a supply line in um, from different directions. And also, um, they report in the uh, brief uh, initial report that there, there is uh, flames through the roof, uh, cars in the, uh, the uh, driveway. So... Our, our, the other thing we do normally for our initial safety and our initial writ team, the second arriving engine will be the initial safety officer and be the initial writ team, but that can be passed to the third arriving engine uh, based on conditions. The officer on six made that call, communicated it over the radio, and said they were going in because it was Thanksgiving weekend, Sunday morning about 7.30, cars in the driveway. So they made a good tactical call to go in uh, for, for life safety. And this was uh, enhanced because we had an off-duty firefighter who lived in the neighborhood, and he reported that a family of five lived there, too. So it all indications worked in that we were going in uh, to make sure uh, no life safety uh, was impacted. So um, I confirmed that on the radio. They're going in. They're doing. Uh, they're, they're working everything. I arrived on scene at 745. Uh, engine 9 is on the second floor. Engine 6 is on the first floor working a primary search. And Engine 9 has reported one bedroom floor has burnt out. Uh, ladder truck gets there. Um, we'll, we'll talk about in the after action review. We got, got, you know, had some vehicles stacked up probably a little bit too close or inappropriately. But I think that was because we brought the supply lines in. Now that I think about it. Um, so uh, I, I get the truck company. and say, hey, make sure the power's cut. And at 7.50, a mayday is declared for one of our firefighters where the leg fell through the floor on the second floor. Um, we go into the mayday. Uh, I, you know, I put out the request for additional resources. Uh, I'm, I'm, go, I'm at the command post go, getting ready to pull my checklist. And the captain reports that they've got them untrapped and they're exiting the building about a, a minute later, a minute and a half later. Um, got them out, kept the, kept the additional resources coming. And um, we've still had to fight the fire. And the funny part is that the one thing we mentioned in our after action is we never figured out how to come out of a Mayday operation to return to, if you will, normal operations. So uh, fortunately, uh, the firefighter was not injured. He did lose his boot when they yanked him out. Uh, it was the interior crew that, that yanked him out. Um, we got the fire down. The fire was going to be caused by somebody leaving an iron on the floor before they went away, uh, went away for the weekend. Um, and some of the other things that popped up, in the mayday is that the mayday was uh, occurred 10 minutes after the arrival of engine nine and 16 minutes after the 9-11 call. So, um, you know, that, that's the scenario of what, what occurred. That's an impressive, uh, memory on the time hacks, chief. Uh, <laughs> I wrote notes. Every I'm, single one of those. I, I'm not okay. going to lie to you. I I'm... wrote notes. <laughs> <laughs> now what, what's interesting though, is uh, I have the audio tapes and we, we use it for training. And, and, and if Chris will talk about it, we, in the firefighter survival course, um, I'll present this so we have an actual mayday. Um, but the number one thing that sticks out to me is real time takes time. And that one minute felt like it was forever. And that we, we have a tendency with exercises that we want to hit benchmarks. We want to, we want to check that square. And the reality is real time takes time. I can't, I can't say it any more simpler than that. Um, you got to give your people an effort to work. You got to give your people uh, the it, to let you know what they need. Cause, uh, you know, doing some studies on Maydays, we see that sometimes we just deploy the Mayday team and I did it. I said, go. And, uh, but we didn't, I never asked them what did they need? Cause I was more worried about getting bodies in there to help. So I'm not saying it's maybe not the wrong 
decision or the wrong direction, but it not, might not have been the best one at the time. So anyways. Chief, so you've been on scene, you know, five minutes at this point. Uh-huh. And you hear mayday, mayday, mayday. I assume, you know, it's still a pretty active firefight at that point. Yes, sir, it was. There was still active fire, yes. So, I mean, what, what goes through your head as the incident commander? Everything. Uh, everything pertaining to, to that scene. Um, at the time in my department, we were, we were trying to work on getting 360s of the scene. And uh, at, for battalion chiefs, we were looking at, okay, how can a battalion chief get a 360? So we practice that we use a headset at the command post, and it, it's corded for a reason. So you do not um, tunnel vision and get pulled away from the buggy because you have to look at big picture. So what we were trying in the department is, all right, as soon as the battalion chief gets there, they can get a, a quick either 270 or 360 so they can understand everything. I was walking away from the bu- from the command post. We call them uh, buggies, our battalion buggies. I was walking away from that to do that really quick. The mayday occurred, and and I, I think I sprinted back in two steps back to the buggy. And just uh, I, got, I got off my portal, got on the headset, and just, and just uh, let it roll from there. So were there any... Uh... Changes from the near miss. What? What? Were there any kind of? Uh... Well, what? You know, we did the near miss report. Um, the biggest thing I did that day, and it was a Sunday, is I visited every station and I pointed out our SOG. Our SOG could have been improved. It can still be improved. Um, but what I pointed out to everybody on duty that day, I said the SOG does work. It's not perfect, but you got to train against that. And and there was a lot of good stuff that happened that day. Um. Or that actually, let me let me precursor that that week, the Wednesday before that engine company, engine nine, had just gone over the rules of engagement and they had focused on maydays, when to call the mayday. So the training was fresh in that captain's mind because he just had delivered it the Wednesday before Thanksgiving. Um, fortunately, I was the one that developed the checklist, um, so I knew it because I wrote it and rehashed it, put it out to people. We tried it. Um, you know, going back and forth. So I had, I had a little working knowledge of it. I didn't need to look at it because I knew it. Um, we got the, I kept, like I said, we got the resources going. I just, I remember just banging off everything that I needed, how all the notifications, but I think that came back to, I had messed with it. And this goes back to everything about fire, firefighting training and probably a lot of other areas is redundancy matters. Going over something, going over the basics is critical. Um, and you, uh, I, I realized that day. So that, that was the lesson learned. I want to say, Hey, we got something that's working really good. Let's, let's move it to the next level. And we made some adjustments, uh, you know, some life, uh, some firefighter survival skills have changed. I mean, this, this is nearly eight years old, nine years old now. So, you know, we're always changing. Fire protection is always changing. You know, Alan Brunacini says that, you know, firefighters, the two things they don't like is change and things stay in the same. I might have that backwards, but, um, you know, we, we know that happens, you know, nobody wants to change and you don't want to get, but we also know we can't get comfortable because then you, that leads to complacency. Well, I'm glad you uh, asked that question, Chris, and I'm glad you answered that chief. I was, I had it written down here, you know, where you guys prepared for that. And it certainly sounded like you were, you know, and through preparation, training and checklists, um, it sounds like you were definitely ready. Yeah, and we did we did follow up with officer development too. We brought we brought in his case study when we did the post we did a formal post action. We listened to the audio, and I promise you to this day I know when the mayday is going to call, and the hair on the back of my neck still comes up uh, as it gets closer, and then the mayday is called. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to ask about recommendations for exercises, and forgive me, I haven't been through FRAS, or a Firefighter Rescue and Survival Course, for those of you who don't know what FRAS stands for, and Chris is an instructor of that, and uh, the chief, um, he does a presentation at that particular course. So, you know, forgive my ignorance here, I, I know what I've read um, in regards to maydays and firefighter survival, and, and the, the things that I've trained on throughout my career, um, but I wanted to ask recommendations on exercises, and Chris, you might be able to also answer this question. Um, what what would you recommend to firefighters out there, particularly in the DOD? You know, that's that's our main audience here. Um, what would you recommend to those folks? I, I, you got to look at you have to look at the case studies, the NIOSH studies where we lose firefighters. They're they're a great foundation to to see what went wrong. 
Um, they've studied it. You, you have subject matter experts come in there and look at it and learn from the, learn from their loss. I think one thing, um, you know, I, I'm a big fan of, uh, of B shifter and uh, blue card. I, I use that as a personal training thing. I would love to see my uh, department adopt it, but there's some issues where we can't adopt it because of our size of our department. What's behind it? Because we can't bring the resources Phoenix, Arizona can bring to a structure fire. Um, but I think, I think it serves as a great foundation. Um, when you do your exercises, they got to be realistic as possible. Um, and it, and sometimes reality is tough because you don't have the adrenaline dump that that is for, and that, that's even sitting at the incident command post. Uh, you can sit there and play with the exercise all you want, but until you feel that adrenaline drop when one of your firefighters in, is endangered. I mean, it's one thing when you have a civilian that's trapped, I mean, there's a lot of adrenaline, but when you turn around and have one of your firefighters trapped or missing, um, it's, it's huge. I mean, there is an adrenaline drum. So the, so the training has got to be realistic. How, how do you get that, uh, sense of urgency pumped into you? Um, so it's got to be realistic. Uh, you look at the NIOSH reports, um, then, then get down to the task level. And what Chris teaches, uh, with FRAS is that you, you have to have a survival mindset because you have to build the stress in there. And they do that. I, I, I've observed the class at Dobbins. I haven't been able to make it up to Grissom yet. Um, it, it, it kills me that I can't be up there because I love, you know, I, I still love getting down there with firefighters and listening to them because it, it's, it, it's, a, it's a joy that never goes away because once you put a group of firefighters together, even when they're learning tough stuff, they can say some of the funniest things, but they're watching out for each other consistently. Um, so, foundation your NIOSH and then you have to do it on a regular basis it can't just be once and done it can't be just once a year I really think May Day has to be once a quarter if not sooner I mean look what our pilots go through how often do they get into a simulator how often do they practice their survival skills when it comes to landing that aircraft in an emergency uh, we should be I mean we're in the Air Force we should we should be able to get our firefighters to start talking to those uh, pilot crews um, I know I've had some discussions outside uh, after talking. Chris has had some frustrations and uh, we tried to we put our heads together. What about this? What about that? The way I envision FRAS for the reserves and all of the Air Force and DOD for that is that's our SEER school. That's our survival and evasion school because that's what it's like. You're in a combat situation. Um, and the thing is, it doesn't happen very often. So why are we not preparing for it more? Right. Are you a Gordon Graham fan by chance? I am. Do you listen uh, to any of his I, stuff? I do. The first time I got to hear, hear him was in uh, 2002. Um, oh, wow. Uh, this, that was the first uh, iChiefs conference I ever went to. I'll never forget. It was in Kansas City. Um, I was still in my... I was actually still activated for the year after uh, 9-11. But yeah, high frequency, uh, low risk, or high frequency, high risk, et cetera. Low frequency, high risk. Yeah, I, I, I listened to him consistently. Got to hear him... Uh, out in uh up in Charlotte, I was up uh, be able to be up there. Uh, city department sent me on that, and I was really glad to see the reserve side of the house starting to get back uh, at the chiefs conference. Uh, you get some of that education up there and do that networking. Yeah, a lot of what you were saying, there's a lot of parallels to what he says. Um, so that's that's why I asked that question. But I actually listened to that particular briefing, the one in Charlotte just recently. It was on company officers specifically, right? or the the role of the supervisor, the company officer, the tactical level in enforcing. Yes, policy. Billy Goldfeder and, did it with them. Yes, yeah, Billy Goldfeder. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that was fantastic stuff right there. But yeah, you know, I spent most. Of, it's kind of funny being a chief officer. I did more company officer training at Charlotte than I did chief stuff. Um, I, I don't know if it was because I missed it or I was interested in uh, you know training it, what I could bring back. But I just I enjoyed the company level stuff. It was good. Gosh, it's, it's arguably the most important role within any organization, but uh, especially a fire department, that tactical leader, you know, the success or failure kind of is on their shoulders. Um, it's heavy responsibility, I think, as a company officer. But, you know, that's a topic for another day, maybe. <laughs> Chris, you got anything else? <laughs> yes. Yeah, I, Chief, I, obviously you nailed it. I, I think truly that's perhaps the greatest disservice in the fire services to train for high risk, low frequency events in the classroom. 
you, we've got to be able to tap into the midbrain and the whole fight or flight response to expect firefighters to react appropriately um, when it goes down the real world, you know. And you obviously we can't make somebody actually fear for their life in training, but we can tax them physically um, and get them those repetitions under stress to create the muscle memory that's required to, you know, again, react appropriately that once or twice in a career that you find yourself in that, that truly life or death, um, mayday type situation. It's, you know, we're, we're, we're animals. I mean, humans are animals and I, and I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. I, I think your our listening group understands that we fall back, uh, to instincts. There's a reason why you go to the rifle range when you shoot, you don't pick up brass until shootings over one it's a safety thing but two there was a study i forget who did it but years ago and i learned about this at rookie school uh here in the civilian department that um they were talking about police training and weapons training and getting engaged engaging with the bad guys and they um they had a young police officer he did a uh traffic stop uh it escalated turned into a gunfight and the officer was killed so when they were investigating, the thing they found was all the brass had been picked up and put in his pocket. And so what, what they did at the, the gun range was they would go shoot. They would immediately pick up the brass, put it in the pocket, reload, and then shoot again. Well, that got so ingrained into uh, his psyche, that was his instinct. They So when he was getting, instead of him just quickly loading his revolver, putting uh, rounds down range and quickly reloading, he was picking up all his brass, whether it was five or six shells, depending on the revolver he had, then reloading them one at a time, making sure he had a full barrel, and then shot. So that's where the realistic, uh, the training has to be where it's instinctive. Um, you know, and, and I've done this, and I am not a fan of this. When we do exercises, um, we always say exercise message. So there was an incident uh, outside, around my military community. And uh, they were doing a life flight, and they picked up, uh, they lifted off, coming off the highway, and sure enough, instant commander reported, uh, patients being airlifted at this time, exercise message. Because it was so ingrained, and it wasn't an exercise, it was a real-world uh, uh, motor vehicle collision, motor vehicle accident, depending on what part of the country you're from, you call it. And uh, it got in there, so I do not like using an exercise message. I say that, I'm doing an exercise up here for rope rescue several years ago we were using our radios and the one time the hospital's actually listening to the radio when the medic reported up said you know bilateral femur fractures etc cetera, etc cetera. they said we're standing by we're doing a trauma alert etc you know the ems captain had to run on, on the phone and call him so it's kind of funny how I, i've seen both sides where in an exercise you're supposed to use the exercise transmission and then real world we use the exercise transmission so there's the reality right now should we be using exercise message well you have to follow AFIs. I'm not saying don't follow AFIs, but maybe we need to think of a better way to do it um, so we don't ingrain stuff that's not supposed to be there. And I, I'm so happy that you said that because, and it's funny that you said that because it actually happened to me personally. Not that, not that I said exercise message, but we had a serious call within the past year, I think. And, and we went back and ran the tapes and the first crew on scene said exactly that exercise message and i was it's like man that's just it's wild how that happens and so i'm of the opinion that we should just get rid of it completely um and i don't know that it's written down anywhere that you have to explicitly say this is an exercise you know um and if you do then i'll take that one to the chest you know what i'm saying like um i, I think that it's better to reinforce good habits and uh it's it's important to uh to, to practice how you play. Right. So I think the, the best alternative is to switch to a different tack or something like that, you know, specify that this tack is used for training. When I was stationed in Alaska, we used tack four for training. That was a pretty common tack to use because it's a tack that you'll never really use in the field. Not n never, but very rarely would you use tack four. And if you did, it would be a, you know, at least a type three incident that's, you know, multiple operational periods. Um, so anyways, sorry. No, that's a, that's a good point. Um, that's maybe what we need to do. And I, I, you might, you might be right. Um, 
that it's maybe not written down, but we've gotten so used to it, or at one point it was written down. I'm sure somewhere in my uh, decades now, I, I'm saying that as a joke. You know, I came into the military in the 1900s, uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, I, I was on the water rescue team with NOAA, etc. But um, yeah, I, I think we just maybe uh, we normalize it that we we have yeah, to say absolutely. it. But you know, every time you have an exercise briefing, I mean, it's it's in the exercise brief. You know, make sure you precede and end all radio communications with exercise message. Right. So, yeah, uh, but you know, there's that. a reason why we did it. Uh, I mean, there's a reason why we did it because mm-hmm. obviously something bad happened and we reverted that, but nothing says we cannot go back, take a good, honest, hard look at it and say, do we need to change it? Uh, or yes, we do need to change it. Mm-hmm. I, I believe it's the book um, on combat by Dave Grossman. I don't know if either of you have read that, that, that details, um, you know, the issue of law enforcement officers picking up brass in real world gunfights, you know, or, or some of the different training isms that become muscle memory and are, you know, part of how we react real world under stress. Um, I highly recommend that book for anybody. That yeah. I can't remember. That. I can't remember if I've read on killing or on combat. But the uh, but the 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 lessons are, are pretty similar from what I, from what I understand what I've seen heard and seen. Well, Chief, I'd like to switch gears a little bit and talk about your command chief duty specifically. I mean, it's it's not every day that we get a command chief on here. We have spoken to one. He was out of Vandenberg, an active duty firefighter, active duty command chief. Uh, but it's always cool to get that kind of strategic, higher level perspective. And you know, having a reserve command chief—that's a whole nother perspective compared to what we're used to here. So I guess first, how'd you land the job? Um, and how was the transition from your fire job into the command chief position? Okay. Well, interesting. Um, I know chief Hogan, uh, I'll say this, what I find really interesting that one year I was stationed at Herbert field. I worked with uh, chief Joey Meininger now chief. He's the, uh, command chief for Misawa. Uh, then, uh, chief Hogan, who was over at Vandenberg, of course, now he's the commandant for the chief leadership course up at Maxwell. So, uh, I, I'll brag about this. I, I think Herbert field cr- did something good, but in that fire department, three of us all served together at the same time frame and made command chief. Um, that, that will be my one bragging point, That's uh, wild. because, uh, I served with some, uh, some good people at Herbert field, some people that, that have advanced in their careers, but, uh, you know, Joey and, uh, DJ, uh, especially. Um, and there's only one other fire, fire chief that I know that make command chief. And that's uh, chief Tom Brandhuber, who was the 10th air force command chief at one point. He's now, uh, down at another unit at Davis Mothin. He retires in November. So there's four I know of, I think there's, there might be one out there, the reserve active duty, but, um, it's a, uh, it's a privilege. It's an honor to make it. Uh, the one thing I always try to say is the star that's in my, my Chevron. So the command chief is not mine. It's my wings. And uh, I feel um, I'm humbled uh, when I, when wearing that. Uh, and it'll, it'll be uh, it'll be difficult for me to uh, step out of that role um, once I move on to the, either the next next mission or retirement. We'll have to see what happens on that. But the way I landed it was, uh, like I said earlier in my intro, I was asked to act at the wing. And I remember I remember the conversation was uh, it was after after hours, probably doing some cocktail napkin um, reviews. Um, and, uh, the then command chief, uh, asked me and said, Hey, would you consider being the acting command chief so I can go pick up a deployment? And uh, I'm kind of looking over my shoulder going, well, where's everybody else? Cause I'm, I'm a fire chief, you know, I'm, I'm working at the flight level and you know, I'm looking at the, the organizational chart of, <laughs> of my wing and going, why me? Um, uh, and, you know, it's funny because the, I was asked to apply for, it, uh, before my deployment in 2015, 2016. And I felt honored then that I was asked, uh, but I didn't, I wasn't a chief long enough. And that's what I told the then command chief that I wasn't ready for it. But then I, you know, I went home, uh, I, I took the month to think it, think it through and talk to the wife. Uh, one of my, my first career, once I made chief master sergeant and fire chief, one of my career hopes was to become the uh, air force reserve command uh, fire chief. And that, that was kind of where I was going. I wasn't thinking anything outside of uh, fire protection. Uh, however, um, talking to, as I, as I joke to my wife or the domestic commander, Docom, uh, she did not want to geobash for three years. 
Um, and that's what I would have had to have done. I would have had to go over to Robbins and uh, lived away from the house. Uh, fortunately, I only live about three hours away from Robbins, but she did not. She did not want to do it. I asked her three times. The third time uh, I asked, she kind of got mad at me and she said, I don't, "You're not going to. We're not going to geobash. You can be a command chief if you want." And I said, "Well, be careful what you ask for. And, you know, that'll come back later on." So, anyways, I acted for six months, and as uh, as uh, that command chief was going out the door for his deployment. Um, he said, one or two things going to happen when I get back. You're either going to want to kill me or you're you're going to really you're going to get it and you're going to want to proceed. So and at the same time, I also had to ended up doing some discipline action on one of the members in my own squadron uh, that I had, got, I had gotten read into. So had to take care of an issue day one uh, being acting command chief. So that all happened. I uh, uh, that command chief got back. We went through everything, had some good pluses. Uh, learned a lot. It was a great leadership lab and it hooked me. It really did. It, it, it hooked me. So, uh, I knew I was, uh, due to rotate out from, from, uh, the 919th, I had to get out of the way because in a reserve unit, we can stagnate because we're all position based on our promotions. So the 10th air force fire chief position, uh, opened up. So I applied for it and I was picked up for it. So I started drilling, doing my weekend stuff, uh, at Fort Worth, uh, the uh, reserve base out at uh, Fort Worth, Texas, which is a naval base, uh, joint base, and did that. So um, went through, uh, I was out, out at NAP 18 months, uh, did some uh, assisted AFRC, the IG team on some uh, UEIs, uh, did my own commander's directed uh, assessments that we did with 10th Air Force. We'd visit units, uh, interacted with that. I got a uh, did some other training opportunities that opened up because I was there positioned open at Duke field. I applied for it, uh, interviewed it, and then I was offered the position. So I, I jumped into it in March of 2019 landed there. So I was going home and this had been my wing that I had been in for, uh, let's see by then no, 20 years it had been my wing for 20 years. So, so I was coming back. And, uh, so that's how I landed. Now, the one thing that when I was acting all the group, well, back then we call them superintendents. Now we call them SELs, senior enlisted leaders. Back then, all three of them supported me. They came to me individually and said, listen, you're the right person to grow. Um, you're the right person to uh, to be here. So we'll, we'll support you. And they did. Uh, I, I think the funniest transition in acting and in the real world, if you think hurting firefighters is difficult, hurting a bunch of chief master sergeants just takes it to a new level. Um, good stuff. Uh, honestly, but it, it, it's interesting because you see a lot, you know, you, you get personalities in a fire department and you see those personalities amongst uh, fellow uh, fellow chiefs as well. And uh, so, you know, the biggest transition, I just went from being responsible for 32 people to over 1,700. You know, there's no not much change there at all. Um, but the big thing about becoming a command chief is uh, I, I knew my I knew my world's firefighter, I knew my world in CE, I knew my world in, in the mission support, but, um, and I knew, I said, Hey, we got aircraft, we fly aircraft, we got missions and there's got to be maintenance for it. But I really didn't know it. The other large lesson I will say is first sergeants. Um, on a regular basis as a fire chief, I dealt with one first sergeant, uh, when in a reserve wing, you're the functional manager for well, all wings, command chiefs are the functional manager for the first sergeants in their wing. And uh, you want to know a, if you don't know how strong your first sergeants are, if you don't know what kind of, how rewarding that career field is, uh, or a special duty, I shouldn't say career field, that special duty is um, become a command chief and, and watch. And you might see it at the group level. I'm pretty sure you see it at the group level too, but um, it's, that was probably, that was the huge eye opening for me. It was understanding first sergeant because I still had the army mentality of first sergeants, even that much into my career, um, uh, them being more operational per se. My, my thought process, if you saw the first sergeant, you were in trouble. Um, and that, that, that got changed and that took several years. You know, it took me to become a chief master sergeant to figure that one out. So the shame's on me for not figuring it out sooner. But once you realize what that, what that first sergeant council does for your whole wing, and not just inside the wing, outside the wing, because they get involved with a lot of uh, projects outside the wing. Um, so, but, you know, it, it, it's been a blessing. Uh, I, I still wake up some days and go, what am I doing? And it, 
and who am I to be sitting in this position? And I've worked with some great chiefs, great command chiefs on the active duty side, uh, on the guard and the reserve side. And it's opened, uh, opened, opened my eyes to a lot of things. Um, development. I can see where, you know, how we're, how we're trying to development on the active duty side. We're going to try and apply it in the reserve. Um, I think it's a good thing, but I don't know if it's going to be the direct answer for the reserve side of the house because we're a part-time force. We've shifted from being a strategic reserve. We're now more of an operational reserve, especially my wing. Uh, that's the one I can really speak, speak for. Um, and it's, uh, it's, it's different. I mean, there's more people, there's more responsibility. There's a lot more going on. Uh, one of the things when you step outside of your career field in, in a command chief position, um, you, you don't forget where you came from, but you got to remember you have to include everybody across the whole wing. You have to, so you kind of shy away from your original flight. Um, I can remember hearing inspection results once uh, we were getting the outbrief from the IG team for the wing and I, I heard, heard a couple speed bumps from my fire department out and did, I did not say anything, but the wing commander said when they were reading the fire department report, I was white knuckling the table. And, uh, cause I, I want them to do well. And when I hear a small, small, you know, wh whether it was brought up, you know, yes, they got to improve. It's a good, the IG process is good. That's what it does for, but you still don't want to hear a report about one of your units, uh, especially one that you served in for, for uh for years uh getting written up on something yeah i appreciate you providing all that perspective and uh i think your transition into becoming a command chief is a great example of of luck but luck in that opportunity luck is when opportunity and preparation meet and i think that they wouldn't have ne they would have never asked you to fill in the command chief had they not saw the potential in you to fill that position. So I, I just want to highlight the fact that I think it's a, it's a good example of do the right thing all the time consistently. And these kind of opportunities are going to come find you. You know what I'm saying? Um, but I, I, you said that more elegantly than I did in the last five minutes. Honestly, that, 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 that is it. Thank you for saying that. You, you said that much better than I did. You're right. It's hard work. You have to be prepared. Um, you always have to be prepared for that next step. Uh, the caveat to that, though, is don't swing too far. Don't only just concentrate on getting promoted. That's that's your number one goal. Is do the best your job that you're in right now, and at, at the opportunities will come. Now, you, now, I'm not saying you don't do any work. I'm not saying you don't do any research, but don't be don't make promotion your only focus, because that that that'll take away from you. Well, and when you do, those people stick out like sore thumbs. It's really counterproductive. Um, in my experience, from what I've seen. And I, I did want to mention that we did have another c command chief on the podcast, Chief Kwiatkowski, uh, Episode 9, the 3rd Air Force Command Chief. It was uh, it was Ben's boss for a while. They sat down and had a conversation, really good conversation. And then, of course, Chief Hogan out there at Vandenberg, uh, Episode 25. Chris, you got anything else? Yeah, so Chief is, is command chief for a, a Reserve Special Operations Wing. I, I know you're familiar with the five Special Operations Forces truths. Can you talk a, a little bit about what they are and, and what parallels you see for firefighters? Sure. Uh, so the five soft truths, humans are more important than hardware. Quality is better than quantity. Special operations forces cannot be mass produced. Competent special operations forces cannot be created after emergencies occur. And then most soft require non-soft assistance. If that's not if that doesn't run parallel to a fire department, or a fire department doesn't run parallel to that. Um, I don't know what else does. Um, we we can't mill gen firefighters. Yes, we can put them through a basic firefighting course, but we still have to grow them. Um, you know, looking at, listening to some of the previous podcasts, we're talking about bringing the seven level school back. You know, that went away right as I got into the Air Force. Um, I think we had one or two people complete that when I just came in, and I think it's the right thing to bring that back. Uh, I don't want to say it's a concern, but everything we want everybody to know about being in, in the seven level world to being that firefighter, I don't know how long that course is going to be. Basically, when I was listening to the podcast, I'm like, this has got to be about six weeks long if you're going to do it right. And then we didn't even, mm -hmm. I don't even think they mentioned Mayday or firefighter survival at all. Um, I, I don't, I'm not back, but it, this goes back to the soft truth though, that 
we can't build we as soon as you have a mayday situation you can't get you can't play that catch-up training and get it done in one week afterwards we can't knee jerk we can't uh react too quick now we have to react but it's not going to be turned around in one night because we're going to have to break bad habits we're going to have to break training habits and bring it up so i mean uh, this is you know you go back to desert one this is when uh, socom came online um this was after they had stuff that went wrong and they said how, how are we going to make this better so um you can't mass produce it you can't uh, turn it around quickly and then you know our most important resource uh, anywhere whether it's a civilian fire department whether it's a military fire department it, it is our humans how do we how do we they are individuals our humans are our most important assets and um, they're the one, they're the ones we have to train. They're the ones we have to make smarter. They're the ones we have to give the opportunity, the resources to, so they can make those critical decisions. It, it, you know, if it's a combat situation, uh, a soft team going down range, but what about if I, you know, what about that interior engine company? Um, you know, we are blessed in the department of defense that our prevention program, where our number one mission should be preventing fires, preventing accidents. And I, we do a fantastic job of that, or we would be a lot busier now. The fun stuff, if you will, with the air air quotes, is going to be being operational, going in, making an interior push, uh, responding to an aircraft incident, um, et cetera. That's the quote unquote fun stuff that we don't can do. But, um, it, it, you know, and we yeah, go back to training. Quality is better than quantity. I would, you know, Gordon Graham says it, you know, he'd rather have a 10 minute training subject and you know it so well in that 10 minutes you're done you move on and one it's it's that uh you know when people sit in seats too long you know their rear end starts doing more more of the thinking than their brain uh, or your brain can only handle so much that your rear end can sitting down so the quality of the training is much better than the quantity are we just checking a box to check a box is it is it one or done hey we got to get these 180 hours done this year how are we going to get it done it's important i'm not saying it's not important it provides the minimum standard, but we need to get over that minimum standard. Um, you know, boiling water, Bo water doesn't boil at 212 degrees. It boils at 212 degrees. And I forget how many extra BTUs. That's the way I look at it. We, we can hit the 212 mark all the time, but how do we get over the top to make sure, you know, we're hitting full steam production and we're moving forward. Uh, and then, you know, the last soft truth, you know, we need non, you know, soft truth needs not uh, non soft uh, support. Fire department's the same way. We can't do our whole thing. We can put water, we can put water on the red stuff, um, but we need to have that support with the rest of your civil engineer squad. Now, are we getting the water there? Hey, we need the power cut to the structure. Uh, we need air, airfield, excuse me, airfield maintenance to come in and uh, help with everything. So it's a team effort. And that's basically what the loss the last soft troops talking about in order for those troops to go down range, what kind of non soft support do they need? So, so they, they run parallel with the fire with our, with our world's firefighters. Um, and they just provide to me, they're, they're a focus point. I, I, I keep them on my phone. They're there. I take a look at them. Um, yes, I'm, I'm with the special operations wing. Um, I'm not an operator. I don't pretend to be an operator, um, but there's a lot of parallels with soft training and fire protection training. No doubt. The quality over quantity, that's the one that, that just jumps off the page to me. And it, it feels like, especially as Air Force firefighters, there's so much that we've got to be familiar with. More than most civilian firefighters, right? Just throwing a, an aircraft into the mix. There's a ton of information that, that we have to be familiar with, but a, a lot of times we do that at the expense of competence, you know, and that, that fourth truth that competence is not retroactive. Um, that's one of the, the big reasons I'm, I'm so excited about what Senior Wyatt's doing with the seven level course. It's going to take that level of intensive training to me to develop competent and capable fire service leaders just due to everything that we've got to be familiar with that 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 sheer quantity is going to take a real focus on 
on quality, you know, to be able to, to train our people to the level they need to be for the stuff they may be, you know, called to yeah. at any point in their career. A concern with the seven level school is um, how are we going to get the majority of our seven levels into that school? Now, granted, it's, it, it to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, it sounds like it's going to be more of a train to train. Hey, we need to get so many people from each base uh, into that course so we can start spreading the love. And eventually it, it, it will it will it will come to fruition. Um, you know, uh, you know, I'm, I'm that type of personality sometimes that if it wasn't done yesterday, it wasn't done soon enough. Uh, when I hear a new product that's going to be awesome, I want to jump in, uh, you know, both feed in or I want to get my people involved with it because I want to grow it. I want to develop it. But, uh, you know, having patience sometimes, it, it, you know, is the best part. But, you know, I, I'm proud of the fact that here that it's coming back because I, I, I think I think we took away. I mean, certifications are our foundation training. They give us they open the door. They give you a they give you the certificate. There is your certificate to start learning that level and to move forward. Yeah, there's going to be a lot of growing pains with the institution of a, of a course like this. You know, how are we going to be able to accommodate every single seven level? Um, it's going to be a, it's going to be a big challenge. Um, is is every civilian reserve guard and active duty member going to be able to participate in this? And realistically, uh, no, that's not going to be able to happen. But is there some kind of alternative that we can develop? And I, I think that that's I think that that's definitely feasible. I hope that it is. Um, and for those listeners listening in um, and on unfamiliar with the seven level course, haven't heard of it before. We did an episode, episode 33 with senior master Sergeant Jeffrey Wyatt, the um, career field, what is it? Force development manager. Um, mm-hmm. He is in charge of, you know, CDCs, stuff like that. So, you know, listen to that episode. It's a, an hour long and he speaks on what exactly that course, how it's going to, you know, what the proposal looks like at least um, what's what it's gonna what the layout's gonna be like uh, but the idea is to get everybody in into it that's the idea now now i don't know if that's realistic um you know could there be a you know you send 50 percent and they the rest come back and uh you know kind of embed that into their departments embed that into their culture uh, and it kind of is a what a positive feedback loop in a sense um so well chief do you have anything else, Chris? I was going to move on to the next point. No, yeah. It's, it's okay. Surprised. Yeah, we're getting pretty close to an hour, uh, so I didn't want to. Well, Chief, the last question we have here, the last talking point that I have, I, I think we answered it pretty well, or you answered it pretty well. We, you know, I was going to ask you um, advice on training and preparedness for the job, but we really, we really hit that um, pretty well. So I wanted to ask if you had any kind of leadership advice for listeners, leadership is a topic that I think a lot of our listeners like to, uh, to hear about, you know, we, we get a lot of engagement with leadership topics on our fire dog mentorship page. And we've talked mm-hmm. to leadership on some podcasts and they seem to be pretty popular, uh, considering that you've been in the army and the air force reserves, you know, within a fire department and, and obviously succeeded. And now you're command chief and it's, um, I, I wonder what, kind of advice you have on leadership kind of a broad question but well uh you know you know, leadership uh the first way i always look at leadership or i figure it out because it's always nuggets it's always small nuggets i don't think i have my own leadership style i have a a mix of what i've learned from uh various people but the one thing that sticks out about leadership and sometimes we hear it swapped in and out is leadership is a noun and it's a verb the noun is the position um, whether I'm a battalion chief, I got three bugles on my collar. That's the position. Does that give me some leadership authority? It does. It gives me a lot of management. Um, the, you know, chief master stri- sergeant stripe and the five bugles. Yes, that's the noun. Um, and sometimes there are people that, uh, confuse that, that, Hey, if I'm in that position, I'm doing leadership and that's not true. The verb portion of leadership, it, it, it there's a lot of things you can be doing. Um, I, I think the biggest one I will talk about will be communication. Um, as a command chief, I have to be in sync with my wing commander when we're putting out messages. You know, big messages we dealt with this past weekend was the mandatory vaccinations for COVID. So, uh, okay, what's the message going to be? Let's make sure we're saying it to every single group. So when he meets with the wing, uh, all the wing commanders, when I meet with the, the chief's group and he meets with the chief's group, when I meet with the first sergeants, we make sure we're putting out the same message. So we got to make sure we're communicating. Uh, it's the same in the fire department. Um, 
you know, just at a different tier, if you will. But the other thing about communication, uh, and I've, I've made some mistakes like this in my career, is make sure you are an active listener. Don't listen to respond. Listen to comprehend. Because if we screw up communication, um, something's going to get lost in the message. And we already we already have filters there. Um, you know, it doesn't matter what you're talking about, but we got to be active listeners uh, to understand what they're saying. Sometimes it's difficult because, you know, that whole communication model of the sender, the receiver, the receiver might receive a different way than you send. And you have to figure that out using the right medium. But be the active listener. Ask questions. If you don't know, say you don't know. Uh, or if you don't know, go do the research and then respond back. So, um, you know, so that I think communication is key on, uh, on leadership. You have to be humble. Um, you know, you take pride in your accomplishment, but don't don't make that the driving factor uh, of you being in that position. Uh, understand uh, that you're humble. You're there. It's not permanent. It's 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 a temporary position. Um, in doing that, I think training and education are important. When I talk about education, it's not the only thing, but you still have to get edu- You know, you have to get your education, pursue your degrees. I was blessed. I had I had the Montgomery GI Bill, and that was a huge help. But again, I've got my degree. Now, how am I going to use it? Let me share it. Share your education. Don't just hide it for yourself. Get out there, do some writings, uh, and get involved with other people and expand it. And tell your story and how you got your education. Training. We I mean we, we hit pretty hard in training. It's got to be realistic. Uh, it's got to be uh, got to be aimed for the right reasons. Um, but what I'll say about training is invest in your future. Don't wait for somebody to pay for something. Get out there and do it. That's, that's, when I went after uh, Blue Card, I did it for me. And it's made a difference with my skills in the street as an incident commander uh, and relaying. So invest, invest in your training. Um, have a training plan. Uh, is this really a leadership thing? Well, um, you know, it was General Eisenhower said, you know, uh, plan to, and I'm, and I'm paraphrasing, but uh, on first contact, the plan's no good, but it was the planning process prior to. So it comes back to building relationships, having a network, not only having a network to get your mission done, but having a network that you can rely on because you're going to have bad days. Uh, and so that's where I think that's a uh, key to it. So that, you know, that training plan helps you say, Hey, if we want to do this mayday training or say we want to work with our security forces, why, why do they do active shooter like this? Let's figure this out. Let's let, let's do that. But you build those relationships. And the one thing with active duty is there's a lot of rotation of personnel. Um, so you have to consistently being uh, consistently doing that. So if you've been in a position four or five years, you might be doing the same redoing the same training every year because new people keep coming in. So you got to keep that fresh. And that comes back with your training plan. That comes back with your relationships. And, and those are the big things I would pass on. Um, there's a lot more we could probably dive into uh, different conversations. But yeah, it seems that we could probably do specific episodes on each each one of those points. Uh, the ones that st- stood out to me, humility, listening, training, education. Um, yeah, fantastic advice, Chief. Chris, you got anything else on that? Uh, I love the – I mean, everything you, you listed – is focused around people skills, right? Communication, your network. I feel like that's been one of the the lessons learned on my leadership journey is you can know everything there is to know about your career field, you know, be the most technically competent. You can be setting the example of everything, you know, you want your people to be doing. But if you don't have those soft people skills, you're not leading. So, yeah, awesome stuff, Chief. Chris, you're right. It, it's it, it's people skills, and uh, you know I, I've probably learned from more mistakes, which is okay. It's okay. That's the way we learn. We have to, but we just have to fail forward. Um, but you got to have people skills. And uh, I, I, at another time, I could tell you of a time I had a civilian firefighter come to me with an issue, and I immediately went looking for a first sergeant. And I was like, wait a minute, wrong job skill. Um, however. I did, I did reach out to a first sergeant and say, Hey, can you give me some guidance on this? Um, and I explained it to him cause I, I'm really worried about their time when they're off from the unit. That's one thing I have to worry about. Um, cause they have to be in a status, but you know, cause I had those relationships with, uh, with my first sergeants or with other subject matter experts, they were able to help me guide and then provide a little uh, feedback to this person that had an issue. Well, chief, I, I appreciate your time. We appreciate your time. Um, 
a lot of great insight today, uh, particularly the firsthand account of that May Day. I mean, that was really fantastic. Um, do you have anything else you'd like to talk about? Any final thoughts before we wrap it up? Uh, for, I, I just want to say thank you for the opportunity. Um, I really feel uh, honored to be here. I think what you're doing is, is uh, great. It's getting uh, more communication out there. It's getting uh, people exposed to other things. You know, granted, technology has changed in the last 30 years, obviously, for me. But what you're doing here, this is a great learning tool. Um, it's a great way to build relationships. And uh, bottom line, thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. Yeah, same to you, Chief. Thanks so much. Appreciate your time. All right, thank you. I'll be safe. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Firedog Podcast. You can find more commentary articles and episodes just like this regularly posted to our website, firedog.us. We're also on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash the Firedog Podcast and on Instagram at the Firedog Podcast. That is the Fire, D-A-W-G Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, like, follow, stay plugged into every new episode, and please share this podcast and episode with your friends and coworkers on social media or at the Firehouse. This is Matt Wilson with co-host Chris Boykley and guest chief Peter Webb. Until next time, stay safe.